This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. There's got to be a greater purpose to my life than just trying to manipulate the world to revolve around me and my desires and my mandates and my own goals. So from the time Jesus' ministry begins, he continues to confront us with this question again and again and again. For what are you living your life? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. This is Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to today's program. We're in the middle of a short, punchy series from Pastor Jeff as he's talking about going all in. And if you've missed any episodes in this series, you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines. Today's message is called Give Your Best, and it's about giving our best in all areas of our lives. Let's begin with Pastor Jeff, and he can explain more. I'm in Malachi chapter three, Malachi three, most of you will be familiar with that chapter. We'll get to that just in a moment. To start off, I've got a a bar of steel and I've used this illustration quite a few times because it's one of those illustrations that had a huge impact on me when I was young in ministry. And I was doing ministry in New Zealand and we would go over every year to take part in a leadership summit at uh, a church in Hawaii that was led by Wayne Cadero, great author, great writer, great speaker. And I remember near the end of the message, he had all these young pastors in the audience and he held up a bar of steel similar to this. And he said, look, what is something like this worth? And he said, well, it depends on on what you do with it. If you take it down to the local, you know, uh, uh, junk warehouse, they may give you $6 for it because that's about what a bar of steel this size is worth. But if you you take it and you convert it into 16 penny nails, then the, the worth changes from $6 to he said around 60. And then if you take it and convert it to sewing needles, then it goes to 600 or 6,000. If you, if you turn it into cutlery or knife, uh, spoons, all of that stuff, then you can actually change its value to somewhere around eight to 10,000. And then he said, but if you take a bar like this and you convert it into very fine Swiss watch springs, suddenly what was worth $6 becomes worth somewhere around $6 million. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, okay, I think I know where he's going with this. And then he said this. He looked at the young audience and he said, what changed its worth? And he paused and he said that in which it was invested. What you invest your life in really matters. And then he gave us this quote, and I want to quote it for you. It'll be on the screen. There's got to be a greater purpose to my life than just trying to manipulate the world to revolve around me and my desires and my mandates and my own goals. So from the time Jesus' ministry begins, he continues to confront us with this question again and again and again. For what are you living your life? Whose kingdom are you really building? And does the trajectory of your life, does it move toward that which is eternal or that which is temporary? And this becomes such a crucial question in Jesus' ministry because he wants us to come to terms with something that most of us deny. And that is, even if we're Christ followers, the flesh and the spirit, 
They're still at enmity with each other. They're still battling each other. In fact, we're told, let me read the passage again from Romans 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is subject to the law of God. It is not subject to the law of God, that is, nor can it be. What he's saying is when you're operating in the flesh, it doesn't conform well. It's not consistent with the law of God. It wants, the flesh wants what the flesh wants. And so, because we know that we're not the owners, this is where we went last week in Luke 20, because we know we're not the owners, that God is the owner and we're the tenants, there's this, there's this repressive emotion that each of us has because we're upset that we're not the owners. Now, we know intuitively that we're not, but we don't like it and we press it down. Jesus, when he comes into the New Testament, teaches us that this, no area of life is any more evident than the manner in which you relate to your resources. There's no other area of life that portrays who you really are beyond who you say you are more than the resources he's given you and how you relate to them. And Jesus uses this analogy more than any other because it's so revealing concerning the true nature of a person. Now that ought to cause you to, to stand up or sit up and Open your eyes and think, wow, this is the telltale sign? You've heard the passage quoted numerous times where Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But we never really go on, what does he mean by that? Well, he means it's, it's an implicit warning. He's saying that if one places one's treasure in heaven, then that's where one's heart or attention will be. If your treasure is there, the trajectory of your life is there. If your treasure alternatively is on the earth, your heart and attention will be on earthly matters at the exclusion of God. That's what Jesus is saying. If something is of genuine value to you, there's no disguising it. You, you can't hide it. The worth you place on various things in your life is evident by your priorities. Another way of saying that is that which means the most to you will get the lion's share of your time and attention. So we could go on and on. That's just a summary, basically, of Jesus' New Testament teaching on your stuff. And there's parable after parable, saying after saying. So we looked last week at this parable in Luke 20 where the owner sends some servants to the tenants and he's going to expect some of the first fruits of the vineyard to be given to the owner. And when the owner's servants show up, they actually invite him in, beat him, and then finally they end up killing his own son. So the whole point is that how you treat your stuff and how you respond when you've got this intuitive knowledge and precept of scripture that says the very best of you God gets because your greatest passion is the kingdom of God, the issue then is how do we respond to that? So here's what I want to do in this message. This is the end of all in, at least for this series. And I want to get very practical and take on the method of a teacher more than a proclaimer, okay? Because this sermon is about two things. Where do we begin if we're going to be all in? And what can be accomplished as God's people when we're all in and all about his kingdom, which will automatically happen. It's cause and effect when you've been transformed by the teaching and the spirit of the living God, your attitude toward these things changes. Now, let's read the text. And remember what we said, we're going to deal with context first. So I'm in Malachi 3, verse 6. And here's what we read. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. 
Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God speaks. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. Again, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Now, let's do context first. What's going on in the Old Testament? What is going on in Malachi before we try to apply it into our lives? What's happening here? Well, quite frankly, it's uncanny. First, Israel has a chronic problem. The problem is that no matter how many times God delivers them, they refuse to trust in his faithfulness to keep his promises. And God has been working on that for a long time with them. And God is trying to teach them there is a direct correlation between your obedience and my willingness to bless you. And I'm going to keep throwing you into situations until you learn to trust me because I ultimately want to bless you, but I can't bless you and will not bless you unless you trust me. Second, God has entered into a covenant with Israel. And part of the covenant is that they are required to manage his resources well. He's the owner, they're the tenant, tenants and demonstrate submissiveness to him with their resources. And God says, if you are responsible in your resources, you're gonna get, and I'll show you this later, a mighty response from God, an awesome response. Third, because of affluence, that's where we are, Malachi, the people of Israel have removed God from the equation. They've said, we don't need God. We're, we're doing well on our own. They're not considering for a moment that all these blessings are coming from God. They think they're self-sufficient. Remember what we said last week, there's something in us that represses this idea that God is the owner, we're the tenant. Most of us live with this idea of self-sufficiency and we don't believe our lives are contingent on anything other than ourselves until the rug is pulled out from under us and then suddenly we go before God and ask for his help and his blessing. So because of affluence, People often run to God during pain, but away from him during pleasure. And by the way, that's another sermon. God understands that. Now, look at the text. Notice what God says. I love this. In verse six, he says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's pretty powerful. He says, you know what? You guys are a bunch of selfish, entitled, ungrateful little brats. Now, he doesn't say that. But his way of saying to them is this. I know that you're not obeying me. You're not doing what you've agreed to do in our covenant. But you know what? You change, but I don't. And because of that, I haven't destroyed you. <laughs> Your offense toward God is so intense that it deserves judgment, but I've withheld it because I love you. But my patience is growing thin. Verse seven, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, they haven't been taught well by their parents. So this goes back to when parents make a mistake of not demonstrating for their children what a righteous, holy relationship looks like 
between us and our resources, that is passed on to the next generation and the next generation which sets them up for curses rather than blessings. And then he says, return to me, says the Lord Almighty. You're gonna, you're gonna see the Lord Almighty three times in this little section because when God refers to himself as the Lord Almighty, this is a term that reminds the people that I am God and I am able to accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish and I'm willing to go to war to accomplish my plan, even if I have to go to war with you. And then the people, to show you how they're living in total denial, say, how are we to return to you? And their mind, hey, we're, we're good people here. We've not done anything wrong. I mean, what do you mean? We haven't gone away from you. And then God drops the hammer. Will a mere mortal rob God? That's a strong word. Man, that is such strong language in the Hebrew. It's in plural tense as well, which means you've been robbing me for a long time and you continue to rob me. You've robbed me, you're robbing me now. You're a bunch of thieves. Man, that, is, that would be a harsh judgment to hear from God. And then God gets very specific in verse eight. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, in order to apply this, we got to do a little homework here. What is this idea of tithe? Because you can read books and listen to lectures and hear sermons. And even though there might be a different application to the word tithe, there's a an incredible agreement on what the tithe is, its history in the Old and the New Testament. So I want to be very strategic here and very direct. I want to give you definitions. I want to explain to you, step-by-step -step process, what God's talking about with Malachi, and then apply that into our lives. Okay, number one, tithe means one-tenth or 10%. That Hebrew word is used 41 times. It's not an obscure biblical concept. It's a common concept with a common understanding. It means one-tenth or 10%. Second, tithe describes the immediate gift of 10% of your income at first opportunity. So insinuated or taken within the definition of tithe means it's an immediate gift of 10% at your first opportunity. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the monetary system like you and I do today, so they would bring their tithes of grain and cattle and cash into the temple. In Deuteronomy 14, we're told that if a person lived so far away and it was a major hassle for him to get the tithes of cattle and crops all the way to the temple, that would be quite a journey. He was instructed to do this. Immediately convert the cattle and the crops to cash and bring the money then to the temple. That way you're not carrying all the cattle and the goat and the sheep and everything else or the goat and the sheep. You're, you're just converting that and then you have, you have the, the, the coinage, the, the cash, the monetary gain to bring into the temple. But associated with all of that was the importance that it not be withheld. In other words, don't wait. Say, well, I'll get to it at the end of the year. No, you sell, you convert to cash immediately and you make your journey to the temple and you give it when you're supposed to give it. And there's great wisdom in that. Let me, here's why. Let me give you an example. This is the way we're wired. My father, and most of you have heard me tell this, we didn't make a lot of money. My brothers and I, I had three brothers. We lived in one bedroom, two double buck beds, but we had as much as we needed. And my father uh, was a firm believer that we should be in the Lord's house on the weekends, on Sunday. Uh, and so he would put an envelope on the mantle. And when he got his paycheck converted to cash, that's what they did in those days, he would then put the money, 
the first fruits, the tithe in that envelope, and he would write on the envelope God's money and place it there and wait for the next weekend to give it. Now, you can imagine what we boys did. Dad, can we all go to eat tonight at McDonald's? I mean, that was the only restaurant we had in Elizabethan at the time. Can we go to the movies? And my dad would say, no, son, we don't have enough money this month. And as soon as he said that, you know what we four boys would do? Glance over to that envelope on the mantle as if to say, well, there's money in the envelope. And my dad would always say, no, there's not because that money doesn't belong to us. If we took that money, that would be robbing God. And that installed something within us very early on in our lives. He believed that tithe, and he would be accurate, describes the immediate gift of 10% of your income at whatever God places into your hand at your first opportunity. Now, so tithe means one-tenth, 10%. It describes the immediate gift of 10% at your first opportunity. Three, it's off the top of what you make. Not after you pay your bills, not after you do everything else you want to do that week or month. It's off the top. Tithe means off the top of what God places into your hand. And this word tithe begins to become somewhat interchangeable with the idea of first fruits. In Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. It's the first tenth, it's the first fruits. In other words, the very best of what you have in recognition that everything you have comes from God. Now, let me go back to G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite authors, who said, basically, this is the telltale sign of a life that's been changed. When that life understands what true sacrilege is. You and I, when we think of sacrilege, we define it by taking something that is sacred and using it in a profane way. The example I've used in the past, when I lived in New Zealand, there was a, a person who claimed to be an artist who took a statue of Jesus and placed a condom over it and called it art. And the word used to describe what he had done again and again was sacrilege. Sacrilege, you've taken something that is holy and you've profaned it. But G. Campbell Morgan says there's the, another definition of sacrilege that also reveals the heart of the Christ follower. And he says that is, sacrilege is the act of taking something that means little or nothing to you and giving that to God as if it is sacred. Taking something that doesn't mean very much to you and giving it to God. In other words, this is the antithesis of first fruits. This is called leftovers. Four, tithing is a universal principle. For you Bible scholars out there, let me remind you, tithing does not originate from the, from the law. It does not stop with the law either. It is established far before the law. It extends far beyond the law. Abraham, hundreds of years before uh, uh, Moses, brought tithes for the Mosaic law, brought tithes to Melchizedek. Cain and Abel, all the way back in the creation account, Genesis 4, we read Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with, with favor. And I mentioned this a few uh, months ago because it, it's something that came to light just recently, that I'd always been led to believe that the reason God looked without favor uh, on Cain's offering was because he didn't bring the very best portion of, uh, of, his, of, of his first fruits or uh, uh, of his, um, his offering of grain in the field. The problem with that is 
according to the text, we don't read anything that somehow Cain or Abel uh, withheld anything from God. There's no indication of that at all. And there's no indication that Cain brought what was left over. Rather, what we learn later is, it's the attitude with which he brought it. So not only does tithe or first fruits represent a number or a percentage, it also represents the attitude of the heart. And I, I, you know, I had a grandfather that was a heavy gambler and an alcoholic. And therefore, he didn't like spending money on anything but gambling or alcohol. And I remember going to the grocery store when my grandmother would send us to pick up a few things, and my grandfather always resented spending money on something he didn't like spending money on. And I remember, I didn't understand it at the time when I was a little boy, but actually when my grandfather, back then we didn't use debit cards, credit cards, when my grandfather would pay the cashier or whoever we were paying for the goods, he would always kind of slam the money down. He would never gently say, hello, how are you? He, would, he, was, he was not a very kind man. He would just throw the money down like, I have to pay this, but I hate doing it. Part of tithing and first fruits as you move through the New Testament and the Old Testament has as much to do with attitude, your attitude in bringing it as it does with percentage. All right, let's keep going. Five, tithing is a thermometer we learn as we move into the New Testament now, it is a thermometer of spiritual vitality. It, it, it reveals who we are. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your money is gonna go to what you value most. This is not rocket science, it's logical. If you value the kingdom of God and Jesus' work in the world, your budget sheet is gonna reveal that. And that which means the most to you will get the lion's share of your time and attention. Six, Tithing is the starting place for New Testament giving. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see two words to describe what we give to God. Tithe and offering. Are those, do they have the same meaning? No, there's a distinction and that's why both words are used. Growing up in church in East Tennessee, the ushers would come out at some point of the message and they would start, to, or sorry, some point of the service before the message and they would pass the offering plates and I think, it felt like the deacon said the same thing every weekend. He would say, now the ushers are coming forward and we're gonna collect the tithes and offerings. But nobody ever explained to me what the difference between the two really was. Even the Bible makes this distinction in Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? You, yet you rob me, but you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. It's the double whammy. So tithe is one-tenth of your total income given at your first opportunity. What is the offering then? The offering is what you give above and beyond what is required because you're motivated out of gratitude and out of the opportunity to play a more effective role in the eternal kingdom. So you're giving from way down here. It's not enough for you to give what is required. God almost not almost, but God communicates to us but because he's the owner, he has a legal claim to the first fruits and the tithe, the 10% of everything that we have. But for those of us who are inspired by the reality that we can live our lives for something greater than ourselves, going back to the still bar, that we can invest our lives in something that really matters, thus increasing our own personal worth in a pragmatic point of view, Obviously not with the spirit of God. We are saved by, by grace through faith. We get that. But, but in enriching and increasing the value of our lives and our value to God as far as his kingdom goes, then we go beyond the tithe into what we call, what is described as the offering. So in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 in the New Testament, Paul says to Christ followers, 
He, know they, he knows they have a heart to be part of this kingdom and to play a, 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 an effective role in it, an important role. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Let me tell you why this is a very difficult passage for some of us to take. Because Paul is assuming that we have a passion to reap a great harvest. And if we have a passion to reap a great harvest, that means we're gonna sow generously. The very difficult concept here is that some of us, in fact, many of us have never ever given God an offering in our whole lives It's above and beyond. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.